Let me pray and we'll climb right into it. <clears throat> Lord, we appreciate and, and uh, treasure the opportunity to climb into your word tonight. Lord, I pray that we will embrace and adore and enjoy and marvel at the gospel and the Christ of the gospel and the God over the gospel tonight while we see this, uh, the, see the fate of uh, Sodom and even Lot's fate. And I just pray that we'll see ourselves embedded within this story. Pray that we'll look for Christ and uh, that we'll marvel at your sweet design. Also marvel that we have a whole Bible that just exposes you and your plan. Uh, we turn this time over to you tonight, Lord, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Genesis 19. <clears throat> I'm going to begin at the beginning, or uh, I'm going to start at the beginning and I think we'll get as far as uh, verse 29 tonight in one chunk. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Just a few things to kind of chew on there I, I, what I want to do is kind of pick up a few thoughts in the first six verses and then I want us to really low crawl through the rest of it uh, I think probably for the sake of continuity I'll go ahead and just read read it together for integrity my lords please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet then you may rise up early and go on your way and they said no we will spend the night in the town square but he pressed them strongly so they turned aside to him and entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, and shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. <clears throat> but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men, men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city's near enough to flee to, and it's a wee one, a little one. Let me escape there. It's not a little, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. 
So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, <coughs> God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's go back and just do just some quick low crawling for the first few verses, and then we'll uh, really climb in after verse 6. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 19, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. The fact that Lot is sitting at the gate of Sodom, that in this time the gates of a city were an important place to hang out. It's where politics of the city was discussed. The fact that Lot is hanging out at the city gate suggests that he was deeply immersed in the affairs of the city. He may have even become a leader among them. Verse 2, and he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered the house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. The fact that Lot has a house is significant. It's not wicked to be a homeowner. I want to make that transition. But this imagery where Abraham is living in tents, and Lot initially lived in tents, but now Lot is a homeowner living in Sodom. And it began just a few chapters earlier with him tenting with Abraham, agile, mobile, sojourner, pilgrim. <clears throat> and then in chapter 13, verse 12, he's camping near Sodom. And then a little camping trip turns into, I think I'll be a homeowner in Sodom. Entrenched in the world, uh, part of it, seemingly. Tent life is really in keeping with the journey of faith. We are campers as pilgrims, sojourners, and aliens who are living for the city to come. Uh, he pressed these guys strongly. He urged them, please don't spend the night in the town square. Not a good idea. Not for this city. It seems as if Lot knew what was in store if they were to spend the night in the public square. And he begs them, not to. In fact, he ur urges them and encourages them to make haste to vacate tomorrow morning. Let's have a feast tonight. Let me take care of you in my house, and then I want to get you out before the city comes alive. Verse 4, but before dawn, or excuse me, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. We need to appreciate and recognize that the sin that's being addressed and dealt with right here, at least the prominent image, is homosexuality and rape. Two things that are just clearly at the forefront here. What we addressed last week that I think is worth touching on very briefly tonight is uh, Romans chapter 1, verse uh, beginning in um, verse 18. Turn there briefly because we dealt with this last week and it's a delicate enough subject to where I don't want to just breeze right over it again. <clears throat> Homosexuality oftentimes in the church is treated as if at least we're not like those jokers. Sermons and Bible studies can really give the homosexuals a beating and really make us feel pretty good about ourselves. And I don't want to do that, but I do want to deal with homosexuality biblically. And biblically, Romans chapter 1, I think, is probably the strongest argument against homosexuality. In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Those are key images. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The following verses expose what that's going to look like. And God's wrath is directed and revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, the ungodly and the unrighteous, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, I got this figured out. They became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And this is a key phrase, a key transition here. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchange the truth about God for a lie. That's what the unrighteous and the ungodly do. They they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature, oftentimes themselves, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He said, okay, I'm turning you over. That's the first turnover. Here's the next turnover. Here's the next giving them up. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And this is a key passage. Look how much airtime is given to the issue of homosexuality. As a key billboard image of trading the truth about God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Med committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And then he goes on, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge him as God, God gave them up in a third level to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he goes into this incredible vice list that even includes being disobedient to parents. So you got to appreciate, biblically, homosexuality, the image of homosexuality is presented as the epitome, the... Uh, <clears throat> Poster child, I think um, we got an ex- uh, a word last, last Wednesday night as the poster sin for trading the truth about God for a lie. So that, that was the sin that was at stake in, in Sodom. But what, was it the only sin? <laughs> no. And I shared some passages with you last week, three or four passages that capture other things like social oppression, adultery, lying, abetting the criminal, arrogance, complacency, and showing no pity on the needy. So Sodom was not. A good place. Okay, now we're picking up tonight in verse 6. Lot went out to these men, these men that were pursuing this wickedness. He went out to these men at the entrance, and he shut the door after him, and he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Okay, it looks like Lot is going to be a brave man in this situation. Looks like he's going to tackle this thing, this scenario. He closes his guests in behind him, and he steps out to face the men of Sodom alone. Okay? It seems that despite the fact that he's living in Sodom, that he's moved in, he's purchased a home, he's sitting at the city gate, maybe he's really even become one of them, it seems that he still yet has some scruples. And he's recognizing how wicked this is, and he still has some measure of righteousness. Turn over to Second Peter Keep your finger in uh, Genesis. We'll come back to it. Turn to 2 Peter. This is a key passage for interpreting Lot and interpreting Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is not just some standalone story about a wicked city. It is our story. And it's New Testament images like this where... Peter, in this case, deals with an Old Testament story that helps us realize that the gospel has been illustrated over the ages. And we ought to go back and look at it and look for Christ in it every time. We ought to look for ourselves in it. If we're in the story story of of Sodom and Gomorrah, let me just do a little test so far. Who are we? Who? Lot. Okay, good. Y'all been paying attention. Right. I I think before really studying it, I would have kind of dealt, you know, reckoned myself being Abraham. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to be this especially righteous guy over there, you know, living in a tent like I'm supposed to. But really, if I'm going to be honest with myself, I think I look more like Lot than Abraham. But we'll come back to that. Second Peter, we want to take this escort into this story. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If he's reckoned with wickedness before, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Have any floods happened since this? Any worldwide floods? I don't think there have been any worldwide floods, at least to my knowledge, since this time. I think, I think Noah's flood was about the only one I know of. That rainbow kind of sealed it. There have been any uh, countries or cities destroyed by 
fire and brimstone and sulfur falling from heaven since this? Maybe, maybe they were in the biblical story at some point, but outside the Bible story, any, anybody know of any? I think this is a taste of things to come, and he's saying that this what's making them, he's made Sodom and Gomorrah an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. As we're sitting here in 2008, we can still say it's going to happen to the ungodly. And there may be some of the ungodly among us who are here as just a social experiment or might be here so we can get in good with our friend who invited us. We may sit with people on Sunday mornings. We do sit with people on Sunday mornings who are saying, I'm an atheist. You may not know that. We think that we're all the people of God gathered around the table, but on Sunday mornings, I will tell you right now that there are atheists sitting here among us who might be the ungodly that this is addressing. It might be some of our kids that we're raising up saying, man, I'm just tolerating this. I can't wait till I get of age because I'm out of here. So there's an urgency to us sitting at the table and to be begging for the souls of maybe the ungodly even among us. We're certainly living in a community that has plenty of this. And this Sodom and Gomorrah is making an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, (laughs) I'm thankful that it says righteous Lot because as you really study Lot, you're going, ooh, grace is sweet. Mercy is sweet because Lot is not all that. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now he goes on into chapter 3 talking about the day the Lord's going to come. Peter is viewing Sodom and Gomorrah as a lens by which to interpret the future. It's not just an old ancient dusty story over there in Genesis. It's our story. And we may not be at the point of destruction yet, but it is coming for sure. Okay? Let's move on to verse 8. Right. Seems that he had fallen pretty pretty far. If he's a picture of fallen humanity, then that's about right. That's a good observation. Verse 8. Lot. We thought he was going to be brave, but let's see what he does next. Behold, guys, wicked men of Sodom, I've got two daughters, two honeys, they're cute, who've not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. It says, only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. Here Lot shows that he's not altogether brave. He's offering his two seemingly unwed, uh, but probably likely betrothed um, virgin daughters to the mob. And uh, while he has a responsibility to protect his guests, as you would hope, fathers and mothers, he has a responsibility to protect his family too. But here he, in some ways, identifies himself with the language that he just used, his brother, and sitting at the city gate. And with this action, he identifies himself as a local sodomite. Now, it might be easy for us to look through however many thousands of years ago this was to look back in judgment. But we do have to appreciate that this was a significant quandary he was in. Because here's a situation. If he hands over the men, then he dies with Sodom. He may not have realized that at that point, but the way the story unfolds, that's, that's a certain, or that's a possibility. I don't know that a whole city of humans could have wiped out two angels. I don't really know. I don't see a picture of angels and humans going head to head. But if there's the, the expectation that possibly, at least maybe this is going on in his mind, that if he hands over the men, then he dies with Sodom. And if he hands over the daughters, then maybe the family lives. And maybe we can just get some therapy. And we can move beyond what's going to take place afterward at the hands of the mob. Okay, in verse 9. But they said, the mob being they, the mob said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. They don't even know, well, they do know who he is. But they're not even referring to him by his name here. In the original Hebrew, it's this one came to sojourn. 
Okay, they, they know who he is. And I'll tell you why they know who he is. Is because about 15 years old uh, uh, earlier, just his relationship to Abraham kept Sodom from being destroyed. You remember when Abraham went Ricky Recon? And went as a little, war, like a warrior, old man warrior, kicking some king behind? Sodom was saved 15 years earlier. They know who this guy is. But he's just, a, he's just something in their way. He's just an obstacle. He's not even a person with a name anymore. This one came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. These men reveal the true heart of Sodom. These two angels slash men, men in angel, or angels in, in human form, came to examine Sodom. They don't have to go to the town square to find out what's going on in Sodom. The town square came and found them. And they revealed the true heart of Sodom. Wicked and unaffected by Lot's pleas. They don't even refer to him by his name. Now the forgetful mob didn't consider his relationship to Abraham. And they seemed pretty focused on what they were after. And something else that I think is noteworthy is that they were unwilling to be judged by another. How did they respond to him? This sojourner, this guy just came to be a, a camper here. I remember when he had his tent pitched out there, and now he's moved in, and now he's kind of moved into politics. He bought himself a house. He's calling us brothers, and here and now he's going to be the judge of us. Remember what they said there? This fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now, this is important. We're going to take a moment to consider this because this is some, something like Cain replying to God's questioning about Abel. Where Cain said, what? Who am I? My what? Is it my job to keep up with my brother? Realize that's wickedness. And that's a murderer that's talking right here. And these are rapists who are, who are saying these things. You're not my judge. You're just a sojourner here. And we need to appreciate that that is the mindset of the world. It's none of your business what's going on in my life. But the people of God are different. People of God are different. We are our brother's keeper. There are plenty of pictures, biblically, of the people of God being involved in each other's lives and holding each other accountable. It's all over our Bible. Now, let me take you to a couple places. I want you to see this. Turn to Romans chapter 14. <clears throat> If we only had one satellite, and let me, as you're turning there, let me acquaint you with the images of satellites. Uh, many of you have heard this before, but some of you may not have heard this before. A GPS unit works off multiple satellites. If you don't have at least three satellites, then it can't triangulate. These satellites are in different places, and they're giving you readings. And if, if you only have one satellite, you may be along a, a linear um, direction from that satellite but it can't tell you where you are on that line another satellite can tell you where you are on that line but it takes a third satellite to really triangulate and give you a, a definite position where you are and and the more satellites involved the more robust the reading about where i am okay so satellites if you look at at, at scriptural references at satellites you say okay i, I want to i want to eat I, essentially i want to connect with a satellite when I eat a passage of Scripture. Okay? If I only eat one, I could end up anywhere on that line. I need to eat more than one, and the more I eat, the more robust the reading about where I'm going to be. If this was our only satellite, listen to this passage in Romans chapter 14. If this was our only satellite, then we could say, man, stay out of my business. You're not my keeper. It's not your role to judge me. Listen to this passage. Romans chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment, there it is, on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. If that was our only satellite, we'd have pretty good grounds for saying, don't, don't confront me about anything. 
You're not my keeper, right? If that was our only satellite, did you hear that? That specific phrase, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? But we've got more than one satellite. We've got a lot of satellites, in fact. I'm just going to show you a couple others. Well, I may just show you one. No, I'll show you a couple others. And what I want to do is take you back to this Romans chapter 14 because this is such an important issue. I want to show you this. Just keep your finger in Romans chapter 14 and look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is such an important issue. And it's so super cultural. The world says, leave me alone. How I handle my life, how I handle my time, even how, especially how I handle my resources, like money. It's not your business, man. Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's tolerated not even by pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you, he's writing to a church, the church at, at Corinth, he says, you're arrogant? Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already, already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Wait a second, didn't he just say not to judge? So we've got another satellite we've got to digest here. It, keep, it goes on. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for, this, the, for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little sin in the church leavens the entire lump of bread? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what it is when we hold each other accountable. It's a, it's a spirit of sincerity and a spirit of truth. Verse 9. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Listen, he says, but I'm now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or if he's an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's not my business to judge an outsider. And then he says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? As if that's a given. He says, God judges those outside. And then he says, purge the evil person from among you. I look back at Romans chapter 14. I'm going to read a little bit further. And I want to help you kind of digest how these things fit together. This is a little bit of a tangent from Genesis, but it's one worth considering. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes in an honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to the Lord. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. What he seems to be capturing here in chapter 14 of Romans is don't meddle. Don't meddle with each other. <laughs> We're talking about real peripheral issues, about what you eat or what day is special for you. We're not talking about a real core key sin issue. We're not talking about leaven here. We're talking about preferences. Don't be meddlers among each other, but we are a brother's keeper. And there's a reason for that. I just want to take you to the reason briefly, and then we'll move back to Genesis. Colossians chapter 1. Why are we about our brother's business? And why are we inviting? This is what church membership is, guys. If, if any of you are considering it, and this is a reminder for those who are members, church membership is an overt, intentional statement that I am accountable to you and you're accountable to me. That I'm searchable. Search me. And you're inviting me 
to search you and hold you accountable. And here's why. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Here's what Paul said. Paul said to him, he's referring back to Christ in the verse before. Christ we proclaim. There's three verbs. Christ we proclaim. This is probably a participle warning and teaching are probably participles, but that's a kind of a verbal use. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So why am I my brother's keeper? Why will I do the hard task of holding you accountable? And why am I begging you to do the hard task of holding me accountable? Because it is our chore, duty, privilege, honor, to proclaim Christ, to rebuke each other. To warn each other. That's exactly what Lot did to these, you know, brothers, whatever they were. He's warning them. He did it to his sons-in-law too. He's warning them. Proclaiming, warning everyone, and teaching everyone. Hopefully this is in our hand when we're talking. We're not up to just, hey man, I just don't think you ought to do that. I just don't think that's a good design. Open the Bible and let's use this as the reference. For warning for teaching and proclaiming with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's why we are brother's keeper. That's why this picture where Sodom is saying, this guy thinks he's a judge among us, that's worldliness. People of God aren't to think that way. People of God are to be relentlessly searchable. Relentlessly. Man, fling open the doors of my home, fling open the doors of my marriage, fling up the doors of my parenting, fling open the doors of everything that I am and search me. Why? Because there's a glory at stake that's beyond me. That's what's at stake, is that we're presentable when Christ returns, that we're a beautiful bride. We're not meddling like over there in Romans 14. We are involved with each other, and we are walking together because there's glory at stake. Okay, let's go back to Genesis. little tangent. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 19, verse 10. But the men reached out their hands. This, these men are the angels, okay? The men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Listen to what they do next. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, all those men of Sodom. They struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. (laughs) You want to know what lostness looks like? You want to look for an image of lostness? Groping for the door is a great image. That's, I mean, you want, if someone said, what what does the world look like? Well, (laughs) groping for the door, groping after stuff, groping after pleasure, groping after things, groping after power, groping after promotion. That, if you want to characterize what all that stuff is, it's groping for the door. It's a great image. And ironically enough, these are the angels who struck them blind. Was, the, the word there is used, it, it seems to indicate they dazzled them. <laughs> they dazzled these guys so that they couldn't even see, they couldn't even find the door anymore. And I was thinking about the parallel pastor, or passage or picture of the God of this world Blinding the minds and hearts and eyes of unbelievers so that they won't see the gospel. And in some ways, the God of this world, he's, what did we say last week? He doesn't scratch his behind except, for, except by permission. Satan, he's not autonomous. He's not his own sheet of music. He's not anti-God. There's not God and then there's Satan and they're competing and dueling and going back and forth. Satan doesn't do a thing without permission. And the fact that Satan is even serving the way he does and and blinding the minds of unbelievers is only by permission. Now, I want us to collect some verbs since we're here in verse 10 and 11. What are the angels doing with Lot? We're going to collect some more verbs here in a moment. What are the angels doing with Lot? The men do what? They reach out. That's one verb. Come here, let me get you. Okay, they reach out. What else they do? They brought him. Okay, what else they do? Okay, what else? They, that way, yeah, they struck. What, what, let's look at Lot. What they do with, well, this isn't Lot necessarily. They shut the door. 
okay? This is just a few verbs that I captured. We added a couple of them to, to my list. They reached out, they brought Lot in, and they shut the door. The verbs are going to pick up again in verse 16, and these are sweet verbs. These are the kind of verbs that the saints ought to just enjoy and adore, and I'll connect them here in a moment. Verse 12, then the men, or the angels, said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. Look over in, uh, just kind of keep your finger there in Genesis 19, and look over at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Seems to be an emphasis on God's part to rescue by family and household. Now, it's not a rule. It's not as a rule, because there are isolated incidents. But God has a special place for families. And when you see, even yet again, if you're paying attention, when you see... This, these ambassadors of God who are saying, hey, Lot, they're not just saying, hey, Lot, let me grab you, let me rescue you, and let me take you out of the city, but where's your family? Let's go get all those that belong to you, all those with you. And you see the same picture when, when God is dealing with Noah, that he loads up Noah's family. When you see passages like that and you're really attentive to it, and then you see Deuteronomy 6 where fathers are teaching children, then maybe you're beginning to connect the dots of why there's such an emphasis for shepherds to be equipped to train their families in righteousness. There is a dependence on the church to do that, on the staff to do that, on programs and systems to do that, and while those things can be effective, they're secondary means. I I don't want to throw those things out because the Lord has used those for years. I, I'm, I feel like, to some extent, I'm a product of that. I bet many of y'all are a product of that if you've been in your church home for any period of time. But that's not the primary instrument. The primary instrument for training in righteousness is shepherds shepherding their family. And that God is saving by families. And again, it's not as a rule, but it's sort of a principle that you begin to recognize over and over again. And then when you do, you start to read passages like this. Psalm, don't even turn there. Just listen to this passage. It'll be familiar to you. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe, bring, come, worship, tremble, say. When the family is doing these things, singing, blessing, telling, declaring, ascribing, bringing, coming into the courts, worshiping, trembling, and saying among the nations and among our neighbors and among our cubicles and our workmates, the Lord reigns. What happens is the outcome of that is there's a bunch of lets happen. It says, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. The field and everything in it, the sea and everything in it, The trees of the forest are singing for joy. They're all cheering for the family and saying, Go, family, because the kingdom of God is coming back when you're about doing what you've been called to do. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. The kingdom of God is ushered in. If you take in the full sweep of this Bible, it's ushered in by families that are doing what we're called to do. Yeah. And, you know, but there had to be something there that he wanted to stay for because if it was that bad, oh, yeah. Get out? Oh, yeah. He, he loves city life. We're going to look at that in a minute. He's going to trade off Sodom for Zor. I mean, he, it's something about city life for him. Yeah, but the thing is, is that why that city, I guess, is the question I have. Now. Yeah. If, if it was so bad, it seemed like he loved city life, he could just try to find another city. Yeah. I don't know. There's a weird, weird thing. I, I, I read a book a while back. This um, I, I, I bet some of y'all read it before. It, it, it's called Who, Who Moved My Cheese? 
Is it who moved my cheese or who stole my cheese? Who moved my... There's two of them. Who moved my cheese is the book I'm thinking of. And these, there's four critters, and two of them are mice, and two of them are, I guess, the guys that stick around and just are victims. But they, they find some cheese, and the cheese starts running low, and these two just become victims, and they hang out where the cheese, they, they go there every day where that cheese is just dwindling. And then these other two say, hey, man, I'm going to go off and find some new cheese. They're, they're taking a risk. I think it's kind of a business sort of book, isn't it? You know, they have the guts to go find new cheese, you know. That's kind of a picture, you know, scripturally, to have the faith to go find, you know, to go move to the hills and move into a tent. There's some sort of security that it, in some ways he seem, seems to be clinging to and maybe having a house around him and relationships, although wicked. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but he, he doesn't seem to be willing to step out and find the new cheese of faith. Now, he seems a pretty faithless guy, but thankfully he's saved. That's <laughs> an encouragement to me, but that's a, that's a good question, a good point. Okay, let's look at verse 13, chapter 19. Okay, these angels are still talking to him. They, so they ask if he's got anybody else in town, or is, is anybody else in town, anybody else in the house, anybody that belongs to him, bring him out of this place. And they say in verse 13, for we're about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Okay, judgment and destruction seem to go together. And we should feel the full weight of what we're about to see, the weight of these catastrophic events, because this is our due but for what? Christ. That's, that's, that's the word I wanted to hear. Or maybe cross. Or maybe gospel. Or maybe blood and nails and injustice, spit, crazy weird trials that just show the wickedness of mankind. An empty tomb. I mean, we could insert a lot of stuff into that blank. God's sovereign election. <laughs> Crazy. We could insert into that blank. But would, that would be our lot, but for those things. Verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get up out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy this city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Lot had no impact on his sons-in-law or his future sons-in-law. They thought he was just joking with them. And if you think about the contrast between Lot's inability to convince even his own sons-in-law compared to Abraham's, really, his pretty neat, remarkable reasoning with God. You know, if there's 50 there, <laughs> would you not destroy Sodom? How about if there's five less, God? You remember the foot-in-the-door method, you know, where you just kind of slowly eat? How about, how about if five less? You contrast those two, you see a pretty interesting picture. Now turn back to Second Peter chapter 3, just to show you that Peter's thinking through, or seems to be, well, he does, he even mentions, mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. But he's thinking about end times. And as, as I read this passage in Second Peter chapter 3, page 1019 of your pew Bible, as I read this passage, think about Lot's message for his sons-in-law. His message is, up, get up out of this, or get out of this place. That, that was the southern version. Get up out of this place. For the Lord is about to destroy the city. Now listen to these words from Peter. It says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful designs. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The very God that created all things is the very God that sent the flood to destroy it all. Minus Noah and his family. They forget these things. He says, but by the same word, this same God, the same word that spoke and said, let there be light, the same word that created the heavens and the earth, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are store, stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment 
and destruction of the ungodly. Peter is looking at this story in the end times through the lens of Sodom. And I can't help but wonder, as he's talking to his people, he's thinking, I hope you're not going to be like Lot's sons-in-law. I hope you're going to listen to me because I'm not joking. You see a smile on my face? Am I laughing? I mean, that's, I just wonder what Peter, Peter is probably a pretty steely-eyed preacher, teacher. And I don't think he's joking right here. He's probably looking at this through the lens of this Sodom and Gomorrah story. Verse 15, back in Genesis, chapter 19. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. It's just, man, the, you just hear the, the gavel. Thankfully, you just see grace just bathed all over this, just poured all over the story. So the men, start to look for verbs again. So the men, these angels, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out, and they set him outside the city. Talked about this a little bit ago. Lot lingered. In some weird way, he felt more secure in an evil city with this sordid group of people than he did outside the city with God, living in a tent. And here we see a picture that the Lord was, and this is our story. You've got to realize that he is still merciful. In dealing with Lot, he demonstrates his mercy, and this is the same mercy that covers us. The men, these angels, led them out by the hands, and they brought them forth, and they set them outside the city. Three more verbs that we can add to the ones that we read already. Where he grabbed Lot, pulled him inside, closed the door of protection. And then they grabbed them by the hands. They brought them forth and they set him outside the city. That's mercy. Keep your finger in Genesis and look over at Titus chapter 3. We need images like this to help us understand the gospel. Because our... Humanity wants, wants to see our salvation as something that we've earned, something that we've contributed to. And when we see a picture like Lot and we climb into the story and say, okay, I'll be Lot. If but for a moment, I'll be Lot and see if I can learn something. And you see pictures like this in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. He grabbed us pulled us into the house. He closed the door. What are these other verbs? He pulled us by the hands. He brought us forth, and he set us outside the city. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. These stories, these dusty old stories that we might tell to our kids when they're in Sunday school, they are the gospel that we learn how to endure our Christ through. I don't, I, f I feel so, so brokenhearted that most of my life I haven't engaged these stories looking for Christ and looking for the gospel because they illustrate it over and over and over again. Okay, verse 17, back in Genesis 19. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life, Lot. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, the same guy that lingered, <laughs> the same guy that had to be grabbed by the arm, brought out of the city, set outside the city, he says, Oh no, my lord, it sounds to me like John 6.44. John 6.44 says that no one comes to the Son except what? Except that the Father... It says draw, but in the original language, the, that word is drag. <laughs> it sounds like the gospel right here. Oh, no, my lords, I, there's something else I can even talk to you about. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, Ooh, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a wee one. Let me escape there. Isn't it a little one? Maybe if it's little, there won't be much sin there. I mean, he didn't say that, but it's almost like it, because it's smaller, maybe it's not as guilty. Let me go there, and my life will be saved. So he says to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. 
Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. Here in this little interchange, Lot shows what he really loves. While Abraham pled for Sodom on the basis of the righteous who might live there, Lot's motives in begging for Zor have nothing to do with pleading for the righteous there. He's pleading for his own behind, his own preference. I want to go live there. (laughs) I want to be protected there. This guy has very, very selfish motives for self-preservation and has a desperate need for city life. And in some weird way, he sees the preservation, his preservation in the life of the city rather than my God's mighty hand. Go figure. I'm telling you, if you look at this story through Lot's eyes and you try and say, who am I really like? I bet. I mean, I'm telling you, I see myself in Lot. I see my failings, my frailties. I see my doubt. In Lot, we see a picture of the tendency to hunker down in the known and even the miserable rather than strike out into the faith zone and go find some new cheese of God's will. Really? Really? picture of our fallen human nature then in verse 22 he says escape there quickly (laughs) he even listens to this request escape there quickly for i can do nothing till you arrive there yet another picture of god's sweet grace verse 23 the sun had risen on the earth when lot came to zor sunrise is a time for judgment you might know what time the trial started for jesus what time of day anybody ever done a timeline of what happened over the course of the day He died at 3. 9 in the morning is about the time that he was crucified. At noon, it went dark. Three hours of darkness. About 6 a.m., about sunrise, was the time for judgment. Verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. Turn to Revelation chapter 9. I'm going to show you a few brief snapshots from Revelation. I want you to see that this is a picture of what's in store for the heavens and the earth that we live in right now. Just a few quick snapshots. Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I, and I heard a voice from the, from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths by these three plagues a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths turn over to revelation chapter 14 verse 9 this is a theme in revelation i'm not going to read all the passages just a few And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Chapter 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There seems to be a pretty intentional effort to connect the wickedness of mankind with judgment, with fire and sulfur and suffering and pain 
and torment. It is a very real part of God's message and it should be a part of ours. And lastly, I want you to see, not quite lastly, but Sodom is a micro picture, an early version of the world that we live in and judgment is coming. We saw that in 2 Peter chapter 2. Now verse 26, Lot's wife. It says, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. There's not a whole lot of commentary on this, on really what this is. Uh, it's just a simple statement that she looked back and became salt. I just want to take you to one passage. Turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 62. And this is where we'll finish tonight. It's a closing thought for, well, I'll read the rest of the verse and then we'll be done. But I wanted to share this thought with you before I read the rest of this passage. Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. In chapter 9 of Luke, verse 62, Jesus said to him, he's talking about the cost of discipleship, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It just sounds familiar in this picture of being intentional about engaging something and not looking back where you were or where you left. And I think this picture of putting your hand to the plow, if we were to incorporate the picture in Sodom, judgment, Lot's charge and the charge to his family not to look back and this charge from Christ to be about the work of equipping for glory, worship, wonder, presenting for when Christ returns, making the, the bride presentable. If we're to connect those two images, we've got to appreciate this plow as a picture of the work that it is to run and stay running from Sodom. It doesn't come naturally. What comes naturally is to run right back to Sodom. That's natural. If you ever had this thought, this is really hard for me, it's just not natural, uh, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm having to work really hard at this, a lot of effort involved. Uh, for me, the only thing that really comes natural for me is sin. I don't know about you, but really the only thing that comes natural for me is sin. So if it's work, then I think it's supposed to be. It's work with a plow to run from Sodom, and it's work not to look back. The allure and the trappings of Sodom are constantly calling to us. Constantly. And we will never put a check in this block, this side of glory. What I'm saying is there, you'll never have a check in the block. Okay, I don't struggle with Sodom anymore. I don't struggle with the world anymore. This side of glory, we will. Every day. Every person. Every family. Every shepherd. Every pastor. Every one of us, every kid will struggle with that. Uh, let me just close with one passage. Chapter 17, I said I was going to close, and I'm going to give you one more. 17, verse 32. 17, verse 32. Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it so at least in this connection it looks like life preservation that you lose is looking back and longing for the world the one that wants to preserve his life is the one that's looking back and longing for the world sort of like israel longed for egypt after they left slavery you ever studied israel after they left they're in the wilderness i sure miss egypt sure miss all those fun things we did there yeah we got beaten but we were better off in Egypt than we are here. And we can do the same thing when we're looking back to the trappings of the world and saying, man, I sure wish I had all that stuff. I sure wish I had all those things that the world had to offer. I'll close with the remaining verses of chapter 19. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down towards Sodom. Appreciate the elevation reference. It's the same kind of reference where he went down to Egypt and then he came back up to Canaan. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up. That's a picture of sublimation. This, but Sodom became an offering. The smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. If we can climb in this story like it's a picture of the gospel... I personally feel like I identify with Lot. And in this story, at least in this chapter, Abraham looks like Jesus. He's a picture of Jesus. Lot's relationship to Abraham is what saves him.
<laughs> he's imputed with the righteousness because of his relationship to Abraham. Okay? We didn't get to develop every bit of it, but we came close enough. So we'll climb into chapter 20 next week. Does anybody have any, any brief thoughts, observations, questions? Kept you over a couple minutes, about three minutes, two minutes. Sorry. Let me pray. God, we so need these pictures and images of the gospel. Lord, I pray that we will learn to read the rest of this Bible looking for you and your redemptive plan and your redemptive pattern and how you've operated with your people over the ages. Lord, I pray that it will send us to our knees and that it will send us to the cross and that it will send us down low in humility and upward in worship and wonder. And Lord, I pray as a result of that that you'll find a people that are all there, a people that are genuine, that are authentic, that are searchable, that are accountable, that are truly our brother's keeper, not meddlers, but involved with each other because your glory is at stake. I just pray that you will work that in us. It's otherworldly, and I can't muster it. The elders can't muster it. We can't grit our teeth and muster it. It's only something that you can bring to us, and we beg for it. Pray that these images will shape us into being the salty, bright, aromatic people that you call us to be. Thank you so much for this rich word. Thank you so much for what it tells us, what it shows us, for who it reveals, who it points to, this wonderful cross that we love more, this empty tomb that we are so much, more, more, so much thankful for as a result of these sort of stories. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we're thankful that you'll even save a guy like Lot. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.